I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I create, speak and write today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging that the sovereignty of this land has never been ceded. Hello, this is Taunts, a podcast of in-depth interviews about emotions and the way they shape our lives. I'm your host, Claire Tonti, and I'm really glad you're here. Each week, I speak to writers, activists, experts, thinkers, and deeply feeling humans about their stories. And my goodness, I have one of my favorite writers of all time on the show, the wonderful Jane Harper. Now, I know I'm not alone in loving her work. Her book, The Dry, was a smash hit. It has sold 1.5 million copies in Australia and currently 3.5 million worldwide. It also became a hit film in 2020, starring Eric Banner as the lead character, Detective Fork. The Dry is now the 15th highest grossing Australian movie ever, and another adaptation is in the pipeline for Harper's second Fork novel, Force of Nature, in which Eric Banner will also star. So... In this episode, we talk about what it's like going from a print journalist to having a dream to write a book to then sitting down to write said book, The Dry, and then it becoming an incredible smash hit success in a very short amount of time. And then, as you'll discover in this episode, at the same time in 2016, she became a mum for the first time. She now has two little kids. And so in this episode, we talk about the craft of writing, where her characters come from, what she wants readers to experience while they're working through the book. And we look at her writing from a technical aspect. But some of the things I loved the most about this conversation was that it was warm and honest. And we really talk a lot about what it's like to be a mum, about how that changes your whole perspective on things and how to make that work and be a writer at the same time. She has great advice for emerging writers as well and just life advice in general. We get to talk about why her characters are so vivid and how she approaches writing relationships, which I think is also a real standout in her books. You often have characters in these books that you just fall in love with and can really resonate. They feel really real. We also look at why she's chosen the Australian landscape as kind of an extra character and a backdrop through all her books, from a drought-stricken community in regional Victoria to the rugged Girilang Ranges to remote Queensland outback in The Lost Man or the rugged Tasmanian coast in The Survivors to her new book, Exiles, which is set in the South Australian wine country in the Marilee Valley. So, I just invite you to sit back, grab a cup of tea. This felt like a catch up with an old friend and it was just an absolute joy to meet her. So here she is, the incredible Jane Harper. So, yeah, it's really exciting. It's an exciting time when the book's about to kind of go public. So Yeah, well, I loved it. Fantastic. I mean, I love all your books. They're amazing. Obviously, you don't need me to tell you that. Oh, no, that's so so nice. And thank you for reading as well. Like sometimes people, yeah, they get sent copies and, they just don't have a chance, you know. And, and thank you for having me on the show as well. Like, I, like I've listened to like quite a few rep- new episodes and things. So thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you so much for listening. Oh my goodness! Do you know every person in my life who I said I was interviewing you had opinions and wanted to tell you they couldn't put the books down. And I think that's for a lot of reasons. So I've got a question for you. 
you write really beautifully the Australian landscape and we know that in the dry and it's just stunning the prose but what I find so interesting is you also write people incredibly well and conversation so authentically so your background was in print journalism did print journalism and working in that space teach you about people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think working as a print journalist for 13 years, which is what I did before I wrote The Dry, like helped me in so many ways that I, I didn't appreciate at all when I was doing it. I had no real sense of how well some of those skills would translate into fiction. But I think one of the biggest ones was exactly that, which was being able to talk to people. And I think I absorb their stories and then be able to sort of share those you know, on the page in a way that would hopefully engage people who hadn't gone through what they'd experienced. And there's so many, you know, there's so many instances of that where you go out and you you speak to people about, I mean, sometimes it's a happy thing, often it's unfortunately not. And that ripple effect of how something has kind of changed their life, often forever, it really stayed with me. And it's, it's that, I think that, you know, I'm still, when I write the books, even though they're the crime and mystery, the, the crime and or mystery element for me is just the catalyst for what happens next. And it's it's that ripple effect and what happens on the people left behind that I personally find the most interesting. Mm. Is that why you write so well about rural communities? Why did you choose your books set in those kind of settings? I think the settings always come, there's something I, I think about quite early. So when I'm thinking about the plots and what the, I guess the central story is going to be, the setting is something I'm definitely considering at that early stage. And what I'm looking for is a setting that I think supports the story. So it kind of depends a little bit on what that central story is. But I mean, often, you know, I like to write about communities that are sort of tight-knit in some ways with the good and bad things that come from that. So the characters are kind of forced to interact and have relationships of some level, whether they, you know, maybe like it or not. I, I like settings that ideally by the end of the book, you look back and think, you know, that, that story may, couldn't really have been told anywhere else. That was where it needed to be set because the setting drives the action and it informs the characters in their behaviour and the kind of people they've become. And then the Australian landscape is so, is so diverse and it's got so much, so much opportunity. I think that's one of the, the most fun things is kind of finding these, you know, getting to go out and visit these places and find these landscapes and, and kind of try and represent them um, or give readers a sense of them on, on the page. Mm, I know, you write so beautifully in Excels about the South Australian wine country. Like what an amazing spot to be able to go to because for the dry, it feels like you lived there, but that's not true, right? You didn't actually go into a drought-stricken community when you were writing the dry? No, I didn't live when I first, you know, when I was running the dry before, in a few years up to that I'd lived in Geelong and then I was living in Melbourne when I was writing it. So, no, I've never sort of lived in that in, in that sort of specific kind of drought-stricken community. But, I mean, do the work on the newspapers, like I covered a lot of small-town communities and a lot of them struggling with, you know, weather-related issues and the kind of the pressures being put on, you know, on farmers and the and, and what that means for them and their families. So I do always try and, you know, spend time in those. Well, I, I do always spend time in the places that, you know, I'm writing about. So for Lost Man in Queensland, that was that was one of the really fun research trips I got to go out to. I did go out to the Outback Queensland to Birdsville. Oh, wow. I went to, I actually got some, I, I managed to kind of get in touch with this great guy called um, uh, Neil McShane, who is a retired police officer, and he had policed Birdsville for 10 years, being in charge of an area the size of the UK all by himself for a decade. <laughs> so he had some, he, had, he was a great person, and he really kindly 
I flew out to meet him in his um, the small town where he lives now. And then he drove me like 11 hours across the outback and just shared his stories and went to Birdsville and he introduced me to a lot of people. And I got to kind of go out with the nurse in his ambulance and go on some of the properties and things. So that was a, that was a yeah, really fascinating one. But I think for, for exiles set in wine country, this has to be this has to have been the most like <laughs> I mean, enjoyable, relaxing, lovely research trip ever. I mean, I just got to go out to beautiful places, you know, in and around yeah, Adelaide and the, the regions. Was it like the Barossa Valley? Is that where you Yeah, went? McLaren Vale as well. And it was just lovely. It was the weather was gorgeous, the scenery is gorgeous, the wine was great the, like it was it was just full of people I mean I, I fully appreciate his hard work I, absolutely you know running a business like that but from the outside it was just looked like such an enviable lifestyle and I mean I loved my visit there and it was such a joy to kind of I think try and capture a little bit of that on the on the page in Exiles on the page and I'm conscious I don't want to spoil the story for people who haven't read it yet, but that absolutely comes across. And it's clear that Fork, who we love to meet again in this book, falls in love with that landscape too because of the way that you write so beautifully about it. I wanted to take you back now and ask you why you are a writer because I'm really interested in that, why people pursue the things they do. Yeah, I think I can't really remember not wanting to write a book. It was interesting because I remember a few years ago speaking to someone who works in editorial section of one of my publishers and, and she was saying that she's, she's never wanted to write a book. She just, she likes reading and she likes working on manuscripts, but it's just never, she's never wanted to do it. And I was, I was genuinely like a little bit gobsmacked because I thought that secretly everybody wanted to write a book. <laughs> like I really, I really did on some level think this is, this is everybody's ambition it sort of it sort of occurred to me actually you know the same way as I don't really aspire to go to the Olympics you know or climb Everest or something there's probably people who don't who don't want to write a book um but for me I always did want to write a book and you know I guess I, I enjoyed reading as a child and I felt like that was something that I was always sort of drawn to and I, I always loved the idea of maybe writing a book of my own one day and it, it's it's really as simple as that I just I just felt it was something that I would love to do. And I guess that's why I got into journalism because I wanted to write, but I had nowhere near the level of confidence or self-belief needed to actually write a novel. And journalism was a way of getting paid to write professionally. And then I did that for, yeah, 13 years until finally I did think, you know, I'm, if I'm ever going to write a novel, I need to actually like sit down and try and write one. And that was sort of the point at which then, yeah, I sort of sat down and and really started working in seriously on the book that eventually became The Dry. Why did you decide? Was there a catalyst? Did you just think one day in the morning got the confidence or was there something that happened in your life that made you think it's now or never? I think it was probably a slow build-up. It had been something. So I was 34 when I started writing The Dry and I'd probably been wanting to write a book, well, yeah, my whole year for 34 years or whatever. Um, (laughs) But, I mean, I'd probably been thinking about it, I would say seriously, for probably six years by that point and I I think every year I'd sort of you know year would come and go and all my kind of list of secret resolutions would be try and write a book you know Um, I didn't have an idea or anything at that stage I I wasn't it wasn't an idea that had been brewing I just it was just this sort of broad kind of um, notion that I I wanted to write a book about something and I think I'm not really sure what changed if anything, sort of, there was one one sort of moment that I guess it was kind of this creeping realization that 
I've spoken about this a little bit before over the years, but I, I think I'd always told myself that one, at one point I would suddenly have this great idea and this block of time would appear and I'd, I'd sort of have the time and I'd sit down and I'd do it and the idea would be there. And, and it, it was just that realisation that that's not going to happen. I still need I still need to, you know, pay the rent somehow. I've got to keep turning up at this, this job on a newspaper and, you know, I only get so many weeks annual leave a year. So if I'm going to do it, I've got to do it around my job and around, you know, my sort of real life, I guess. And I think that was probably, if there ever was a, a turning point, it was that realisation this has to be done around things. And if I'm going to do it around things, I may as well do it now because what am I waiting for? Yeah. And I love what you write about your routine around it. I think so many people have resonated with that. Do you want to tell us how you actually physically did that around working full time? Yeah. So when I, when I wrote The Dry, I was working full time and I had to sort of try and, you know, yeah, fit it around it. So what I used to do was I, I set myself like kind of just small patches of time. So I would get up like literally one hour early in the morning and I do one hour or like 55 minutes and, I, and I'd just do that 55 minutes and then I'd kind of get ready for work and then I used to come home and I'd stay in my work clothes and I'd sit down at the computer and I'd do one more hour and then that would be kind of my reward and then I'd, I'd get to kind of go and have dinner and like watch The Bachelor and or whatever and um <laughs> yeah and I worked quite long hours as well like I mean I used to get home to like close to seven o'clock and and things so and I was working weekends as well sometimes so it was it was a bit of a um it did take a little while to, I guess, find that discipline. But I think like so many things, once you get it, it's like forming that habit, you know, you, you, you kind of get used to it. And the more you do, the more you sort of feel, well, I've done that much. It would be a shame to stop now. So yeah. I, I would say, though, like I didn't have my children then. And I, I've often, <laughs> it's funny because I look back and I felt so proud of myself for having written a book while working full time. And I thought that was like <laughs> such a great achievement. And now I have two children and I realized that was the, that was the easiest writing sort of scenario that I've ever had. Like that was nothing compared to trying to write with kids. So if you're listening to this and you're you know, wanting to write a book and you've got children, maybe of any age, particularly small children at home, um, I would re- you know, give yourself a break. It's not, it is very difficult to write with children, I think. Mm. How has motherhood changed you? I think oh, it's changed everything, really. I mean, it does. And people say that, don't they? But um, it's interesting for me, I guess, how motherhood and the books are so closely linked in that the dry came out in 2016, I think in June, and I gave birth to my first child with my daughter in September that year. So, you know, it was a big year. <laughs> it's sort of... Um, and and you got married just before as I well. I did, yeah, the year before, yeah, in 2015. Um, so it's kind of like I, I've never had one without the other. Like I, I don't really know what it's like to be an author without children and I don't really know what it's like to be a mother without the pressure of the books also being there. So they're very intertwined for me. I think, you know, it does, it does impact my writing in a, in a lot of ways. I mean, everything from being aware that my children will, I guess, hopefully one day read my books and what kind of message, uh, you know, about relationships and all kinds of things. So I want them, if anything, to take away from them. To what degree is it worth me spending so much time? The, the time I spend on the books has to be worth the time it takes me away from them, both, like, I guess, physically and mentally. And so I, I really careful of of making sure that that time is well spent and it's it's worth the payoff of not being with them in order to do the work Mm. 
Um, so things like that, I think they just sort of impacted on, on lots of different levels. Yeah. Have, has the content of your work changed after having kids, do you think? I think it has, yeah. I mean, it's because I, I didn't really – I mean, all my books have pretty much been written when I had, had kids, the dry being the only exception. And it definitely has, like, probably in, in big ways, just in terms of I guess I think a lot about kind of the parent-child dynamics, maybe in ways that I wouldn't if I didn't have the kids. But even in, like, small ways, like in, in Exiles, the, the new book, there's a – a scene where um, Fork and uh, Reiko, his friend, are going off. It's sort of midway through the book, and they're going off to, to look at something around this festival ground. And um, Reiko's wife is there with the two children. And I sort of make it a policy of mine, like when I'm writing a scene, I really I try not to do anything superfluous. So everybody who's in that scene needs to be there, and they're there for a reason, and they contribute something to it. And originally, I just had Fork and Reiko going off and wandering around this festival, doing what they need to do for a little while. And I thought, you know what, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it to Reiko's wife. I cannot leave her at a festival with two small children while these men go off and do their, do their you know, their, their work. Like, they are going to take one of these children. And I went back and I, I actually sort of rewrote the scene, which is quite unusual for me to sort of make that kind of change for no real reason. The child didn't need to be there. The child really, you know, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't let those characters leave her with the two kids. They had to take one of them because you know, that's what responsible parenting is. It's sharing the sharing the load and, and so it's yeah. things like that, I guess, kind of kind of come out more and more. Oh, completely. And I think that that's such an important message, isn't it? To send to our kids as well that parenting is a shared thing, that it's not just the responsibility of mothers to be doing that. Is that how you parent now with your partner? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my husband, Pete, is I, I mean, so much a part of the team when it comes to the books because I couldn't, um, I, didn't say, oh, I couldn't do without him. But I actually, I, I mean, actually physically time and effort and everything else involved, I actually couldn't. If he was sort of aspiring to be like, you know, trying to be like a partner in a law firm or something, I would not be able to write the books while he also pursued a career. So he absolutely has to sort of take on a lot of the the day to day tasks with the household and and the and the two kids, so that I can have that kind of the time I need to do the books well and properly. And I sort of see the books a little bit as our like family business, I guess that we both. We both work on them just in different ways, and that's that's his contribution to to you know to the work that then supports our whole family. So that's kind of my well, both of our sort of um, approach to it, really. Yeah, that's how I approach it with my partner too. We're all in it together, and, it, yeah. and it's really healthy then because you feel like you've you've got each other's back, and you can just keep rejigging it to figure out how it will work in the mess of all the parenting and you know, changing things as your kids grow and they need different things from you as well. I'm really curious about mother guilt because I've talked to other friends who are creatives and writers and I don't know if it's something that is experienced in the same way by men. Do you experience mother guilt around your work or are you able to just turn that off? Oh, I absolutely experience it like a lot, you know, and I don't know if it's just inbuilt because I don't, I don't, on a logical level, I don't think I have anything to feel guilty about. In, in fact, I think, you know, writing the books brings a lot to our family and I think it sets a good example for both my, my daughter and my son. And I think the dynamic of having their father so, you know, heavily involved in the, the day-to-day parenting and the household running, I think is also a good example 
I think, you know, it's, it's sort of a good example showing them that you can make a career in a creative industry. You know, you, you can maybe that's different from sort of a, a following your dreams type thing, but it, 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 you can, if you enjoy something creative, there are absolutely paid opportunities within creative spaces to make a living. So it's all those sort of things that logically, I think, really sort of you know give them good life lessons and I and I hope we'll we'll, we'll give them something they can build on as they grow older but yeah for sure like then you know fast forward to me sitting in my office you know on like a Sunday morning like close to deadline and you know my husband is out taking them somewhere yet again and you know and I know that when I get home I'm still going to be a bit distracted because I've got this really important thing to write and I, I really need more time with it but I can't stay there all day and all night so you know then yeah absolutely it, it, it kicks in so much and I, I I can never really fully get rid of it because I feel like I don't know maybe we just built that way I, I don't know I can only think it's a biological thing because it's I don't know what you do to to really to move past that to get rid of that and and when you're someone like, you know, Jane Harper, and I, when I read out, you know, The Dry has sold 1.5 million copies in Australia and 3.5 million worldwide, and you still feel guilty for writing your books. <laughs> That's so nice of you to say, actually. Thank you for saying that because, like, I do have it quite severely. So to hear sort of someone say, you know, that I shouldn't, you know, is like, it, you know, it actually means a lot to kind of hear that. So, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Oh, I think it's just, it's innate in us. You're right. It's somewhere deep seated. And I think part of it too is about giving yourself permission to be creative and to focus solely on your art because you, obviously that's so all consuming and that's completely separate from parenting and, and your kids. Um, I want to ask you about how you actually approach writing a book because I think you do it quite technically, do you? I do, yeah. And I think my process is streamlined with every book as well. You you absolutely learn what works every single time you learn something more and you get better and better at the process. So I think if you're listening to this and you're trying to or struggling even to write a book of your own, you know, just know it, it is absolutely something that you, you can completely get better at. And I don't just mean the writing. I mean the approach to the writing. You will, there's so much information out there about, different authors giving their opinions on you know, how to write a book and not all of it most of it probably won't work for you it's about finding that thing that does work for you and so yeah what works for me is like I plan a lot so I spend the way I, I approach it now which works for me is that um I I spend quite a long time thinking about just thinking about the book I don't even really spend time at a computer it's it's just kind of thinking what is this going to be about and what's that kind of core story and a lot of that is I sort of start thinking about the end of the book, actually, rather than any kind of killer opening. I'm thinking more about the sort of resolution where characters are brought together in probably like an extreme moment and what has led them to that. And I'm thinking like who, so who would that maybe involve and what's sort of the background to why that's happened. And I'm just mulling over the ideas and I write down, every time I have an idea, I write it down on my phone. Um, I have a little folder where I call like, you know, book five or whatever. Uh, I write it down. I do that because you think you'll never forget the idea, but I do. And I find it also frees up my headspace to think about other ideas. And a lot of it is like a trial and error thing. So, you know, I'm thinking, could it be this? And, you know, the answer is yes, maybe it could be that. But could it be anything else? And I'm sort of trying different things to fit in that space. Like, 
is this person a man or a woman? What are they? What's their age? Are they old? Are they young? Do they have kids? Are they, uh, you know, and you're just sort of trying things on. And I, I find that when you find the right fit, it feels like the right fit. It's like that jigsaw piece, and suddenly you can't really imagine it being anything else. So, so I'm, I'm just constantly kind of combing through the idea of just trying on different different fits. And then when it gets to the point where I can't really, I feel like I can't really put it off any longer, then I, I, I sort of go and start working on the computer side. But by that point, I probably got several hundred notes on my phone about this thing. So I'll start maybe putting them into some sort of order, picking out the ones that I still think are good ideas. And I start to form a bit of an outline. And it's a really skeleton outline of what the book looks like. It'll have like kind of just a few sentences, probably beginning, middle, end. And then I'm starting to kind of flesh out from there. So I'm building up kind of paragraphs about what these scenes look like and that inspires you to think of other scenes so you know you can't have they can't have this conversation over coffee if they haven't met yet so they need to meet earlier so things like that it kind of ideas prompt other ideas so and I'll plan and plan and plan and and eventually I'll have this sort of I mean 40 50,000 word plan probably for a 90,000 word book where chapter by chapter is laid out and how the chapter's going to start and end how it's going to flow and it's only really then when I'm pretty sure, like as sure as I can be, that those scenes are the right scenes in the right place, those are the right characters, and this is the overall way this book is going to go, then I will start writing the book and I'll write the scenes one by one in the order of the chapters. I think it's a journalist in me. I don't like writing anything. I don't like writing anything that's like not necessary, like every word has to kind of kind of count. So that's that's the approach that works for me, but sometimes I tell people that other authors, successful authors, and I can see this kind of them just reeling back in horror, you know, <laughs> like anything like that. And I do the same for their, you know, their kind of freestyle, you know, see how it goes. Like, like, like coming to them from the clouds. We both look at each other like we're, we're both authors. We probably should have some stuff in common, but I don't I don't have anything to say to you. We are so different. <laughs> it's <not> sort of <laughs> Because it's a very logical, planned way of doing it, which is actually so comforting to know, I think, particularly if someone wants to write a book, that you can actually do it that way and that you can be really disciplined about it and fit it in in your life in those little hours that you've got around working and parenting and and all of the things. You make it sound so much more achievable, I think. Oh, thank I hope so because that's really what I would love people to know, that it is – Look, it is it absolutely is achievable. And I'm not saying, you know, everybody can have like a best selling book or even like a published book because you can't control things out of your control. You your only control is over things that you can do. And those things are finding the time to write your manuscript, doing the best you possibly can, and that means finding a working process that works for you, fitting it in around your life commitments, because you will obviously have everybody has stuff you know nobody has these blocks of time and even if you do they're going to be short-lived you know you absolutely kind of have it within yourself to sort of try and follow those steps and it's it's a very self-fulfilling kind of virtuous circle where the more you do I mean I remember getting to halfway through the first sort of attempts at a draft at the dry and just thinking, God, this is so hard but I'd already got halfway and I thought well I can't stop now you know I've done so much I may as well push to the end creativity and creative pursuits they seem so out of reach but they're they're just like any other project you've just got to work out the way to approach it it's not it's not magic and it's never a lightning strike I don't care what other authors say maybe they do freestyle and you know maybe they do it differently for me but ultimately everybody has to spend that time at the computer 
and everybody has to sit there while those words come on the page. And and really that that is the key of it. And it's just finding that way that is going to get you those hours and that time in front of the computer and get you to stick with it. One author I love, Glennon Doyle, says, unfortunately, the only way to write a book is to write it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you enjoy the writing process? Like, do you actually enjoy sitting at your computer writing or is it like pulling teeth that you're soldiering through it? Oh, look, I, it's a bit of both. It depends on, yeah, where you catch me and what time in the process. I mean, I love writing books. You know, it's it's so great, so especially now, like right now, the book is, you know, Exiles is done. It's going to come out and I look back and then all that hard work feels 100% worthwhile. There are other days where I have to you know, drag myself in. Like it's a real effort to kind of go in. And I think a lot of the time you sort of feel, well, I feel a bit like you're on a bit of a tightrope in that it's no matter how much support you have. And I have really great support from the publishers, from my family, from readers. No one can do it for you. It's just me. And and that's sort of sometimes you, you can feel very alone in that with just you and your manuscript. But so I suppose it's like lots of jobs, like day to day, there are days when it's less fun than others. But overall, you know, it's it's so rewarding. I mean, how can I how could I not love it? It's what I always wanted to do. And it's a really amazing feeling to see that book come together and to get into readers' hands. And like it really is, it still is. When did you know that the drive was going to be an extraordinary smash hit? Because that, that, you know, there's people who get their books published, but there's not many people who end up with their first book having Eric Banner play their main character. No. <laughs> That's right. When did you know? When did you know that it was? Did you have an inkling while you were writing it that maybe this would be something special? So when I was writing it, definitely not. Then from there on, it was probably a little bit of a, a kind of that kind of frog in a frog in a pot of water. Like it's sort of it kind of gradually became clear very slowly until, you know, suddenly there was no denying it, I guess. So when I was writing it, a hundred percent not. I, I really I think one of the, the best things for me about writing that book was that I, I just honestly thought no one would ever read it. So I'm I I did things in that that I thought I, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter whether this is like convention or whether it's, you know, this is sort of a decision that, you know, other other writers would agree with because nobody's ever going to read it. I may as well just please myself. And I, I just wrote that book exactly as I wanted to with no eye on the industry or anybody else's opinion. And then I entered it, like I've spoken before a bit about how I can really work well to deadlines and that's kind of the journalist's background. And so I entered it in this unpublished manuscript competition that I knew was sort of coming up at the same time every year. And I just did that as a deadline to myself to get it done into a shape where I felt, okay, it's complete to a degree that I can submit it. And but and then and then it and then it won. And I remember getting that phone call. Actually I missed the call. I missed the call on my phone and I and I could see the number was from like the the group um, associated with the organizing it. And I kind of thought, surely like surely they wouldn't call to tell me I had nothing to tell me nothing, right? There's a personal phone call from the organisers just to let you know, thanks for submitting, but no thanks. Um, we hated it. So, so I called them back, like, like sort of hands like shaking, you know, um, in the vestibule at work or whatever. And um, and they said I'd been shortlisted. And, and you know, I, I honestly couldn't believe it. Like I was like, I, I really did not, you know, it sounds like the kind of thing I never thought it would happen, but I really had never thought, I never thought that would happen. 
and then it kind of things started to snowball. So then I won the competition and then I got all this kind of publisher interest and there was so much interest in it. I could, I just, I guess you start to sort of, even having no experience in the industry, you, you, you know, you, you can see that people really wanted to kind of sign up the book and, and it just sort of grew from there really. So it was, it was that really, but maybe if there was one moment, it was maybe that moment of winning that competition where I just thought, are you kidding me? Like, like out of all the books, like, like my book yeah. one, you know. Why do you think it is? Why, why is that? Why did it win? Why did people go crazy over it? Why did Annabelle Crabb rave about it on Chapter 10 Looks 3? Why? Did she? Yes, yeah, she did. Did she really? Yeah, that, that's how I found it, actually. That's oh. how I get a lot of my book recommendations, and she she still talks about it sometimes. Really? I have to. Oh, okay. So immediately after this, I have to go and, like, to look good. I'll send you episode. the podcast episode. <laughs> with the, when she, it was years ago, I think, obviously, because it came out in 2016. So, what? Why do you think? What is it about that book? You know, I, I, I don't. I mean, I don't really know. I mean, other than I guess, like I, like I always sort of, I always say that I, I try and write books that I would like to read, and I, I know that I would like to read The Drive. That was written by another author. I would, I would read, <laughs> I would read my own books. I don't know. I guess <laughs> it sort of sounds a bit weird saying that out loud, um, but I would, and I, because I, I think. I mean, I, I sort of put stuff into the, the books that I like as a reader. I like characters that, you know, have a, a realistic but do have light as well as dark. You know, they, they are able to form normal human relationships and they are essentially, you know, a lot of them are essentially good people at heart, um, but they make you know, mistakes like all of us do. I like the settings. I like settings that, yeah, help drive the action and, and a kind of form, weave that, you know, a through the story. Um, I do love a good kind of double-handed mystery where there's like a mystery but then another mystery and that's something I just kind of try and do in the books, sort of um, give a little bit of two-for-one sort of uh, feel. Um, and I like books that resolve well. I, I mean, and that's, I guess, why I start thinking about the ending so early in the process because I, I love as a reader that feeling when the books, when a story, the threads kind of come together to form a picture and you're like, oh, okay, so that's why that was happening back in Chapter 4. You know, so it's things, it's elements like that that I guess as a reader I like, so I try to put them in the books and I don't know, I mean, maybe I'm just like really mainstreaming my reading tastes and other people like that too. <laughs> I, I don't know. But it's been, it's so nice. I mean, readers, when readers sort of say they enjoy the books or they've shared them with their family or friends or recommended them to someone, you know, it's, I mean, it's the best, it's the best thing. I mean, that's the whole, that's the whole point of writing a book, I guess, so that people enjoy it. Mm, well, they have, absolutely have. I wanted to ask you about Fork specifically, because he's a bloke, right? You know, detective. Why did you write from his perspective? Like, why did you write a, a male perspective, I guess, is my question. Yeah, so it's 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 sort of interesting looking back on on his character and like you know my thought process I guess when he you know when he he first sort of came to me. Um, so that would be back with the dry, and I remember thinking about you know who, who was who was going to be the main character in the story, like what point of view is it going to be from? And he was built very much out of he was formed from necessity in that I wanted a character who would sort of do certain things and fulfill certain sort of roles within the book. And the main thing was I wanted someone who, you know, I thought the readers would follow through and they would warm to. So I wanted someone who, yeah, had a good heart and was someone who could sustain the story. But also I wanted, on a more technical level, I wanted someone who was close to the family at the centre of this, the book, which was the Hadler family, specifically the father, Luke, who comes under suspicion of having 
you know, killed his own, you know, his own wife and children. And I wanted that to, I wanted them, this story to be told from the point of view of someone who knew him well, but from a distance. So I didn't want it to be a close family member. I didn't want it to be someone who knew him really well in the present time, like was still like a current, you know, close friend. I wanted someone who had that bit of distance between them. And I didn't want it to be a girlfriend because I think I felt that was too loaded and it added layers that were not necessarily going to play out well, be relevant as the story played out. So that was the kind of the, I guess, the technical building blocks of how Fork came to be. And then from there, the, you know, the characters kind of, you know, the characters grow into themselves and you learn a bit more about them. And that's sort of the case for all the characters. So, I mean, he's in, he's in three books. The other two standalones have both also been from the male perspective. And it's been sort of similar reasons, to be honest, because I always think about who is going to, who is going to be able to tell the story best. And, for example, in The Lost Man, I had that dynamic of the three brothers. It's a very masculine environment. It was just a realistic point of view that that would be from a male point of view. But I think, um, I mean, like having a um, you know a woman as a main character is something that's like you know a bit, I I think about with every book and I think it's something that I would be very keen to pursue like very soon with that. It's but it's about finding the right characters for the right story and I think in each specific instance it hasn't been quite right for sort of plot and technical reasons but that will absolutely that will absolutely become an opportunity to do that well I hope. Yeah, going for I can't wait to read that <laughs> book then for sure. Here's a question. In Exiles, you write and touch on postnatal depression and you also talk about the difficulties in motherhood. Does that come from your experience or experience of your friends or is that sort of a broader issue and topic that you've looked at that affects women in general? I think a bit of both. I mean, I I often with the themes that sort of emerge, I, I kind of, I sort of think a lot about what the characters will be going through and what kind of things realistically they may be experiencing. And I think, you know, postnatal depression or or just even even undiagnosed, really just struggling, I guess, with new motherhood, I think is something that anybody who has ever had a baby would be aware of on some level, um, either to yourself or to, you know, to, to friends who are in the same mother's group. Or So, I mean, that was a really, I I, I sort of feel it's, more unusual to find, maybe I'm wrong, find women who, who don't struggle at all. You know, I think, and I think quite often there's sort of this expectation that you pretend that you're fine and everything's fine and you're doing well because, you know, you want to do well and you love your children and, and you know, you don't want to be sort of give anybody cause for concern or you just want to be seen to be doing a good job at it. But I think, you know, babies, they are really hard work and especially if you, you do, like so many women, do have a, a job or responsibilities that they're having to, to manage at the same time. Like it is, it's really hard and you, you're sleep deprived and there's a lot of pressure and you, you, you put pressure on yourself to kind of <laughs> give these children the, the, best, the best possible start of any child ever in the whole existence of the <laughs> history of the world, you know. It's so true. So I guess it's just something that, I mean, in that, in this particular book, it felt like a really natural, it just felt like a really natural sort of position, you know, that new mums find themselves, both both young and older mothers as well. Mm, Definitely. I was shocked when I had my first baby. I've got two little kids, a boy and a girl like you, and it just shocked me. The whole experience, I just, there were so many things that I felt really underprepared for. And now looking back, I think I'm so glad for all those experiences. It's taught me a lot about myself. What has it taught you 
about women? Yeah, oh, good question. I think, I mean, the resilience, I think, of, of mums especially, because I know there'll be people listening to this who don't have kids. And I, I do remember before I had kids, there was nothing there was nothing worse than hearing mums congratulate themselves on basically just, you know, keeping their child alive and sending them off to school. And you sort of think, well, yeah, you know, well done. But then you have your own children and you become one of those women who, you know, cannot stop talking about how hard it is and how, you know, how, how draining it is. And so I apologise to people who, like, you know, have heard this a thousand times and it's, it's not relevant to them. I, I, do under, I do understand. I remember that feeling. But then, oh my God, like, when you have your own children, like, it just, it, it changes everything. I mean, everything from, like, your social, your entire social life to, you know, what is, I mean, you know, you get your end of year, like, Spotify rats, you know, when it tells yeah. you what you listen to most. It says, oh, you know, great job you know do you you really love this song and it's a theme song from bluey you know (laughs) (laughs) so it just it just permeates every aspect of your life you know and um but I think I mean I've met some really incredible kind of women along the way who have just done such amazing things while facing that challenge and also you know shout out to the dads as well who I think now thank god like there's so many dads who absolutely kind of roll up their sleeves and get in there and do you know you see them at the school playground and you see them doing all the kind of stuff that just makes things I guess let's the, the women in the household still have their career and and have a bit of a life and mm, completely you know, retain something of themselves yeah which I think is key right it's trying to hold on to your sense of self and identity or figuring out how to do that eventually because I feel like, yeah, initially in your motherhood, there is a real shift in the person you thought you were. Do you feel like now your kids are a little bit older, you're starting to get back to yourself? Or have you, did you keep your sense of self the whole time? No, I definitely didn't keep my sense of self. No, not at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, but I think it does, I think it does come back, you know. Like my kids, are, they're, so they're six and two now. How, how old are yours? Same, six and two. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so it would be like, I, and I think it does. Yeah, I think you do. I think also the second one is a bit easier than the first one I found because you, you sort of, you're in that lifestyle already. And But, I mean, it's hard for me sometimes to remember the person I was before. I mean, it seems insane to me that I used to kind of have the energy to kind of go out in the evenings and that I used to kind of wake up either when my alarm went off or when I chose to wake up. Is this like some sort of fever dream? I can't I can't even imagine not waking a day. Not starting the day when, you know, someone else sort of um comes like tapping me on the shoulder in the, in the early morning darkness. So so um things like that, I guess. And it, it's a bit it's quite weird for me because I didn't have the books and I was work, I was living a very different life and then I kinda had the books and the children all in one. So I think if anything I'm sort of almost discovering like a new, like a third person, and that's the person with both the books and the kids, in, you know, as, as big parts of my life. And that's a different, that is a different person yet again from what I, who I was before, mm. before I became a mother in the first place. Yeah, which is actually kind of incredible really, isn't it? It's, it's that growth that happens when you start to get a little bit more sleep, things start to feel a bit easier, <laughs> and then you look over this like insane period of time and you think, wow, I'm so far from where we started, but how lucky at the same time. You said that you wrote wrote in the books that you wanted to teach your kids some things about people and relationships. What are those? What, what are the things you want them to read 
I mean, obviously they're murder mysteries, mm. but there's deeper themes there. What are some of those? I think um, some of the, I guess some of the lighter, the lighter sort of warmth that you get in relationships. And I mean, I should probably say that, I mean, I don't, I don't write these books as like, you know, primarily as like lessons for my children. Like I hope, that, <laughs> I hope that, you know, my, my day-to-day hands on mothering will be kind of more of a, a valuable lifelong lesson. Um, yeah. but, I, but I do think as well, I guess, you know, you want to, I mean, when, you know, when they're sort of teenagers and reading themselves, I am sort of aware of things like consent issues and um, I guess the relationships between spouses or boyfriends and, and things like that. And, um, and not all the relationships portrayed in the books at every stage are, you know, obviously positive ones. And, but I think when they're not positive, that, that is, um, that becomes like part of the plot and it sort of, it sort of unravels itself in a way that the, the good relationships shine through. So I, I suppose that's the sort of the key. Like, I guess that's the thing that I would, I would hope, you know, when they finished, if they read a book and then they finished reading it, they would, they would be able to reflect on that and maybe just be able to, to differentiate between the good and the bad relationships mm. that you can have. What do you think makes a good relationship? Because there are themes of coercive control and relationships that become really toxic in your books, which I think is such a huge topic and an important one for us to enter into. And I won't go into too much more detail because we don't want to spoil things, but I, you know, it's, it's, there's some really complex themes around violence towards women and, and all of those things. So that's lovely to have the flip side of that. What do you think makes a good relationship, like a solid one? Yeah, I mean, support is a big one. And I think, I think, yeah, genuine support in terms of actually not sort of performative support, if you know what I mean, like mm-hmm. sort of saying, you know, I mean, if my husband was sort of saying, you know, I support you in the books and, you know, you can, sure, you know, good luck, good luck, go and do it. But then he wasn't doing anything with the children or he was, still really determined to pursue his own career or you know things that would then make it impossible you've got to have that kind of practical on the ground support I think I think um as well like I think sort of just finding like someone who who shares your outlook whatever that may be I think that can save a lot of heartache and I I often sort of think I like to say this to my husband like things like around money and stuff like I think I'm really lucky that he and I we share a lot of things from everything from like taste and TV shows through to our attitudes towards money and spending. And it sounds so unromantic, but I feel like, like if I could give my daughter and my son for that matter advice about finding, finding, you know, someone they'll be happy with, it's, it's those sort of small day to day things that can, I think maybe they don't sort of, they're not like fireworks and, 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 you know, rose petals. But I think if they're wrong, they can make you absolutely miserable. Yeah. That's why it's important to get them right. There's a beautiful scene in the book, and I won't say between which characters, where they talk about the practical side of romance and that actually being practical is such a beautiful thing and being punctual because they both value punctuality. (laughs) And I really love that idea, you know, one of the characters brings a bottle of champagne and the other one is like, excellent, you've also bought sparkling water, that's great, and and because we need to be responsible, we need to get back in time for me to keep doing what I need to do. And I just resonated with that so hard. There is nothing more romantic to me than like being sensible as well. I totally agree. Absolutely. It's, that's it. It's like, it's like there's nothing, there's nothing worse than some sort of big, big like gesture, but it involves kind of, I don't know, going out on a boat in like the middle of like, 
I don't know, like a cool spring night and you haven't been worn, you haven't got a jacket and, you know, you've got to drive home to your cars parked in like a two-hour spot so nobody told you that you were going to be out for a holy. It's that sort of stuff. Like, yeah, okay, it sounds super romantic. It's actually very annoying <laughs> to, to not know what, I don't know, maybe some people don't find it. Maybe that's just, I don't know, our personality type. But I think, you know, like knowing, like giving, being given like knowing what you're doing, being kept in the loop, being kept sort of, appreciation for like people have commitments and all kinds of things that they can't just drop because someone's making a big gesture yeah and being comfortable and warm I feel like it's like really key for me yeah it's that idea of being really thoughtful about the small details that's more romantic to me exactly necessarily like getting a hot air balloon and you're actually afraid of heights or something absolutely you put it you put it so much better exactly it's that kind of the small awareness of like those little things that are going to make someone feel good and comfortable and be able to enjoy themselves and just relax and that is so you know it's it doesn't sound like a big thing but it's actually really hard to get those things right and I think it's a really good sign of being either willing to get to know someone or knowing someone well when you can tap into those small things anybody can throw money at the problem anybody can like blow money on like champagne or a big you know a fancy car or something but yeah but not everyone can actually get those small details right I wanted to ask you now about what it's like to be a crime writer and have you experienced any misogyny or sexism within the literary world being a woman writing crime do you know what so speaking for myself I would say I haven't but I mean if if other you know female authors said that they they had you know I would I mean I guess it wouldn't surprise me because why why would the the publishing and book industry be like the only industry in the whole world where there isn't some level of sexism and misogyny I mean it's just so for me personally I mean I I haven't I have never experienced that directly but I mean a big part of my work is like it's so solo you know I spend a lot of time just on my own writing the books and then when you know when the book is finished then it kind of goes into this sort of bubble of very supportive trusted people who I've worked with before you know and, and I do have really some good good teams around me or kind of every level so I'm probably pretty cushioned you know in a lot of ways from from anything like that but I mean it's you know it's hard to know isn't it because you never really know the path not taken I mean if I were if I were a man writing these books would I mean, would would I don't know? Would, would they would they sell more, or would they be reviewed differently, or you know? So you don't you don't really know what the other side of the coin looks like. I think for myself, I'm I'm just lucky that I, I do have that level of support, and it's not been something that that I personally, unfortunately, come across. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a couple last questions. Have you met Eric Banner? Yes, my close personal friend Eric Banner. Um, <laughs> what was that like? Oh, so I mean, so nice. Like it's, I've met him a couple of times now. I mean, it, I'm so I'm so stoked that he is playing Fork in you know in in the dry, and then also in Force of Nature, which is has been filmed. They're finished filming now. They're in the editing stage. I mean, what a great actor to kind of portray your you know your character on screen. He's so beloved. He's such a the warmth, I think, that I always um, associated with him on screen, I feel has always come across the, the times I've met him in person. He's been really, really nice to me. He's been so sort of supportive of, like, the books and the character and, and kind of really bringing them to the screen in the best possible way. So, yeah, and I'm really excited to see, I guess, what they – he and the director, Robert Connolly, who also did The Dry, what they 
um, have done with, with Force of Nature. And yeah, I couldn't, um, I mean, who, who, who better? I can't, I can't imagine anybody else playing that role now. So. No, yeah. I couldn't either, actually. He did such a beautiful job. Do you have any say in the screenwriting or is that all done separately? Do they interpret the book? So Robert Connolly, who also directed The Dry, he wrote the screenplay and he, he actually he actually lives quite near me. So we would meet up for coffee a couple of times actually while he was writing and, and afterwards and, um, you know, just sort of talk. Yeah, he told me what he was thinking and asked if he had any sort of questions about stuff that maybe didn't make it onto the page or and that we, we just sort of discussed things. So, but I, but I would leave him to it. So I didn't sort of help him or stand over his shoulder and, you know, offer helpful suggestions or anything while he was writing the script. Um, I think mainly because, um, I mean, I have no experience script writing and I knew, I could, I knew that he really understood the book. I, I, I feel like he absolutely kind of got that beating heart of what it was and what the characters, you know, what, what they were about. And so I knew it was in good hands with him. And same with, with Force of Nature, like he was, we, we discussed it a bit. We discussed actually this third book a little bit and about where Fork's journey sort of went after that. Um, and, and I think that helps him inform him when he was writing Force of Nature. And then he showed me the script when it was finished. And, you know, I was sort of happy to, you know, and I could see again, he sort of had understood the, the books and the characters. So I'm, I'm really lucky though that he is so good at that because yeah, I mean, if he wasn't, it would be a completely different, mm. like, story and scenario, scenario. So, yeah, thank God for Robert, really. Yeah, well, I imagine he thinks that about you because what rich material to turn into a movie. I heard that you have started the phrase Outback Noir as a, as a genre of books, which I just loved. I don't think I started that phrase. I don't think I've ever uttered that phrase um <laughs> out of from my own mouth but I, I've heard uh, I've heard it quite a few times since then like you know it does seem to it does seem to sort of follow me around now so <laughs> yeah it's, well it's just that beautiful writing about the Australian landscape my last question is a funny one so you grew up in Manchester and you came to Australia when you were eight and then you went back again is that correct yeah so I lived until I was in Australia until I was 14 and then went back until I was 28 and then I moved back out here again okay and do you think that that's given you an ability to kind of see the Australian culture from the outside slightly oh absolutely yeah I think it really did I I do sometimes wonder if if I'd lived here my whole life you know would I have ever written a dry or would it be a different book because I think you know I lived I lived in Australia from eight to 14 which is only six years there were six such formative years you know I was so yeah I went from kid to teenager and and I had dual nationality, so I always sort of felt like I kind of, you know, I still felt a really strong affinity to Australia when we moved back to England. And I always sort of thought at some point I would come back. And then when I did, it was weird because I had all these like really strong memories of kind of growing up here. But then, you know, time had passed and I was older and, you know, your memories as a child are not necessarily accurate. And I had this really weird sort of experience of, of coming back and seeing things that were so familiar in some ways but so different like my old school and I don't know like the the things the newspapers covered and the weather and places that were completely different from how I remembered them and I think those sort of so constant kind of refreshing of memories I think really made me kind of hyper aware of the differences that make Australia what it is it was very different from the UK in ways that I hadn't really anticipated like in good ways, you know, but it was it was this different, just the conversations and and everything. So 
I think then, yeah, when I came to kind of fast forward a few years, when I came to write the, the dry, I wanted to sort of, I guess, tap into those things that had, had sort of stood out to me a little bit at the time as being mm. kind of uniquely Australian, I guess. Yeah, what were those things? What do you mean? A lot of it, oh, a lot of it is the very small stuff. So it's things like, the, like the the dialogue between people, the sort of turns of phrase, the, yeah, the topics of conversation as well. I I'd never sort of, I always thought people in England talk about the weather a lot, but wow, like I had not like sort of heard the weather discussed in such detail as when I moved back to Australia in two thousand eight. And I think the 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 landscape as well, like the way it's just different from the UK, like like in. I've probably described it better in the books than I'm going to here, but just the sort of the the, the kind of the, the green is different and the the feel like the the air and the way people use it, like in terms of in England, a lot of like cultivated like parks and green space, but here in Australia, I found it a lot more raw and open, and it had that little sort of sense of danger in terms of you know, I mean, things like just all kinds of safety safety things and snakes and all sorts of things that you just don't have to worry about you know when you walk into a park in leafy England you know things like that yeah I, I saw you said that um it makes such a good backdrop because things can go from fine to terrible in 10 minutes depending on the weather and what you brought with you and so the landscape itself is so hostile as well as being incredibly beautiful too so no wonder it makes such a great character an extra character in your books absolutely yeah and thank you for I guess seeing that in the books because that's exactly what I kind of hope you know that the the setting is 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 a character in itself and it does sort of contribute to the whole plot and the whole feel of the book as much as any any one single character does Mm. well thank you so much Jane I've loved this interview so much and I absolutely relished your book Exiles. I have just raced through it. I stayed up really late and had to get up with kids at like top five bed in the morning, but I just I couldn't put it down because I had to find out what happened in the end. So I really recommend everyone going to grab a copy. When's it coming out? It's coming out on September twentieth. So um, so now really? Yeah, now yeah, yeah. this will be out very soon. Yes, definitely go and grab yourself a copy because it's absolutely wonderful. And what's next? Well, I, I'm doing um, events around, like around Australia, so in Queensland and Sydney and, and in Melbourne around the book. So, yeah, if you want to come hear a little bit more about the writing and I guess the ideas behind the book, like I'm doing some in-person events, which is the first time in quite a few years I've got to actually do face-to-face, see the, the, the readers, you know, look them in the eyes. So that, that's really exciting for me because, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a few years. So that, and that's, I see that as kind of the reward for spending so much time like a hermit locked in a, an office <laughs> silently with like a ticking clock and a looming deadline no one to talk to. So, so please I come. kind of imagined you were writing your books in some kind of beautiful loft studio with like a lovely view, you know, sitting in the like the lovely Barossa Valley or somewhere in that, you know, South Australia. It's a lot less romantic than that. Okay. <laughs> Which actually is really great, right? Because I think some that's a barrier for writers too. They think they have they can't write the books. They have the perfect desk and the perfect spot to do it in. Oh, I know. And if I tell you, my um, I actually I even have like the, the walls in the office are blank and stuff because I just I just feel like you know if there's nothing else to kind of there's no there's no good view there's no like really great furnishings or anything. It's just the computer. I may as well look at the computer. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> no distractions. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. There's probably a nicer way. There's probably there's probably a middle ground where you can have a, like a lovely lovely sea view or something. And but yeah, at the moment I'm kind of that that sort of spartan like monk like existence. So. <laughs> Oh, well, I hope you really relish and enjoy them getting out of your Spartan month existence <laughs> to the world to meet the readers. I have to say, actually, one of my very close friends is about to have a baby and a message shared today to tell her I was interviewing you and she said, oh my goodness, I'm so, I'm halfway through The Lost Man. I can't put it down. I have to finish it before the baby comes on Friday. And can you tell Jane I'm a massive fan? So there's so many readers out there who just value the work that you do, including me. And um, this has been such a privilege. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks, Jane. You've been listening to a podcast with me, Claire Twenty, and this week with the extraordinary Jane Harper. For more from Jane, go and find her books if you haven't already. Start with The Dry, The Force of Nature, and then her new book, Exiles. Those are three sequential ones. So it's best to read all three as Fork is the central character in each one, though you could read them without having read the previous ones. Her other two books are stunning, The Lost Man and The Survivors. If you like a gripping crime drama with really thoughtfully crafted characters and beautiful scenery, head on over to grab a copy of her book, Run, Don't Walk. For more from me, you can head to at Claire Tonti on Instagram or clairetonti.com, my website. I also have another podcast called Suggestible that comes out every Thursday with my husband man, James Clement, where we recommend you things to watch, read and listen to. And you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be talking about exiles with probably some more spoilers over there on Suggestible. So that comes out every Thursday. As always, thank you to Raw Collings for editing this week's episode and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.